Welcome to Rails with Jason. If you enjoyed today's episode and want more Rails tips and advice, head over to codewithjason.com, where I keep all my Rails articles and videos. Now on to the episode. Today, my guest is Mark Hutter, lead engineer at Landing. Mark, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Jason. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, thanks for being here. You were here for episode 40, looks like it was back in April. Um, So, dear listener, go check that out if you like. We talked about active storage and some related things. Today, we're going to talk about database-related stuff. But, Mark, for those of the listeners who aren't acquainted with you. Can you give us a little intro? Sure. Uh, yeah, I'm Mark Hutter. I, I work for Landing. We're a, uh, trying to reinvent the way people do leasing in the United States. Um, I've been doing Rails for uh, seven years and uh, been in software development for 11. And I've had the privilege to see a lot of different technologies and work with a lot of different teams and, uh, you know, privilege or unprivileged of, you know, managing a lot of people at one time. So i um, Glad to be, uh, you know, programming in Rails and still getting to talk about and do what I love to do. Yeah, that's great. Um, uh, I don't remember how you and I arrived at this topic, but when you mentioned something about databases when we were talking before the show um, in in our email exchange, I mentioned that I had been doing some stuff with database views recently, and we had talked about JSONB as well, which is something mm-hmm. that I've that I've been doing as well. So maybe let's just dive right into it. Um, we can tackle database views first, I guess. And I'll start with just what even is a database view? And I guess so I don't talk the whole time, I'll, I'll ask you, <laughs> what, what is a database view and when would you want to use one? Sure, yeah, for us it's, um, you know, you can, for the layman, you can kind of think of it like a table. It sort of operates as a table, but it's really but under the covers a query that's pulling data from many sources and and kind of aggregating it together and making it look and feel like a table to the end user. So that's what we use it for a lot. We have like, especially for the kind of BI, you know, your business stuff, there may be aspects in which they want to know this data in this way all the time. And um, even for the SQL inclined, putting that in a database view where they can do select star from this thing that is your database view is a lot easier than telling them, oh, you have to join to all these tables and uh, filter on these attributes, and then you'll get the data you want. Yeah, and just to add a little bit to that, the way I think of it is like a database view is a query that looks from the outside just like a table. Mm-hmm. So it's yeah. like a, it's a fake table that you define in terms of a query, and then you can query that query which exactly like, like my use cases are often the same as what you just said. Like I have a reporting area of the application I'm working on now. And there's like certain, there's a certain query that's a pretty non-trivial query that I would end up just duplicating several times if I didn't use a view. So instead of 
duplicating that query several times and making a subquery out of it or like a query that's ever so slightly different for like eight different pages. I just create a view out of that query and then I can say, give me everything from this view, but for just one month. And it's super handy to be able to do that. And what I even like to do is I sometimes like to put an active record model on top of my view and Rails doesn't even know the difference between a view right. and a regular old table. So that's that's something you can do with no problem. Do you ever use that technique? Yeah, we're um, using, uh, you know, hey, I'm not I'm not a maintainer. I'm, this is not a plug, but uh, we use a gem called Scenic. I mean, I'm a Rails developer, mm, so me too. My, my, my entire job is predicated on other people's code. Um, <laughs> but Scenic is like this really great way to, it'll generate views for you and like with migrations the whole thing so it from end to end feels like a model uh from the developer perspective from the like developer experience in the code itself it just looks and feels like an active record model acts like an active record relation that's been really handy for us just to kind of like you know chain things together and um you know make it really easy for everyone else on the team to interact with these things because I'm a kind of a weirdo. I like SQL. So like our biggest one of these is like abstracting and hiding away maybe like a hundred lines of SQL somewhere. And that that's like, nobody really else wants to do that. Right. I don't want to make anybody else maintain that either. Right. That's just like you know not a funny? fun exercise. I hear like, mostly I see things written that like most developers like hate SQL or like they don't know SQL or whatever. And to me, I'm always surprised when I see that. Cause one, I haven't encountered a lot of people personally who like tell me that they really hate SQL or like I haven't encountered people who seem not to know it. Like developers usually seem to know pretty know SQL yeah. pretty pretty well. Or maybe I just don't know SQL very well and I, I think I do and so that's why. Um but SQL is beautiful. Like the way they did it is so great. Like I some languages I look at them like maybe PHP, for example, when I used to do PHP, so many things I would look at and I'd be like, why did they do it like this? I obviously would have done it this other way instead, but never when using SQL have I ever been like, I hate this certain thing. I wish they would have done it this way instead. Whoever put that together did a really great job of like making it all make sense, I think. Oh yeah. And it, I mean, though, you know, I'm sure a lot of the Rails community seems to have a preference to, towards the Postgres database. Um, the engine there and the, the team that's working on the developers, I mean, the optimizations that come out of their, you know, query optimizer and planner and how it executes things is uh, really fantastic. And I I, um, I think it's probably uh, maybe the most valuable skill you can have as any developer is to get really good at that because you know, 80% of anything we work on is like getting data into and out of a database. And that's, you know, more or less it. There's like maybe some business logic and we try to put a lot of stock into that 20%, but really getting in and out of the database efficiently is like most of the job. Yeah. And if your data model is sound, then everything else is probably going to be pretty good. But if Mm -hmm. your data model is not sound, you're going to have a lot of problems no matter how good everything else is. Right. And if you can push, you know, sorts or groupings, you know, like you can kind of do anything in SQL. You could do it in Ruby or Rails too, but that database is going to do it so much better and so much faster than anything 
your, you know, your uh, VM could ever do on whatever server you're running it on. So knowing how to do those things and like when and where to push that stuff down into the database is super handy knowledge to have. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. Um, what do you guys use at Landing? Do you use PostgreSQL or MySQL or something else? No, we're on Postgres. I'm I'm a big fanboy. We won't go into mm-hmm. that, but um, we use Postgres. I've been using it for a long time, and um, you know, years and years ago, I was a um, a reporting services developer, which is like starting my career. You know, in '08, I needed a job. Everybody did. Um, and so I took a really low paying job as like a reporting services, which is, you know, for the younger listeners, SSRS, which was SQL server reporting services and, uh, Informatica, which was the IBM competing product for like big enterprise stuff. And all I did was write SQL all day long. And I never took any database courses. Like I had no idea what I was doing. Um, and so I wrote the, I learned the best way you learn. You do a, you make a bunch of mistakes, you know, um, but it was great to then get into like a programming job where you have these ORMs that are sitting right on top of SQL. And like, I totally knew everything that was going on, you know, then I could run just so much faster than if I had just dropped in at, you know, I mean, this was 2010, so probably Java. I wasn't yet using Ruby yet, but. Yeah. Yeah. It is so helpful to have that understanding of what's happening underneath the hood. Um, Mm -hmm. I've I've worked with people who are newer to Rails and newer to programming in general, or at least newer to web programming, and it can be unclear to them where the line is mm-hmm. and like how things get persisted from one place to another and stuff like that. And I remember for me, like when I didn't really understand back before I even knew what a database was, I'm like, if only there was a way I could fill out a form and then have <laughs> that data be present on the next page and I would like save things to a file and then read that file again. Anyway, having that, like SQL is such a foundational piece of knowledge that if you are strong there, it, it helps so much just for your overall programming abilities. Yeah, totally agree. Yeah. Um, okay. So back to views. <laughs> Maybe I want to talk about a couple like specific examples of what I've used views for. There's this one, I can't tell if this is even a good idea or a bad idea, but I'll share it anyway because I'm using this in a production application. So tiny bit of background to this. I have an application that does scheduling and you can have multiple kinds of schedule items. You can have an appointment or you can have something called an availability block, which to, to make it simple, you could say, I'm available on Mondays and Tuesdays and Fridays, but not any other day of the week. So you need to have those calendar items, which all have, they, they have a lot of overlap with appointments, but it's not exactly the same thing. It's distinct enough from appointments to warrant having its own separate table instead. Mm-hmm. So rather than duplicating these things across appointments and availability blocks and whatever else, I have a separate table that's just called schedule items. And so every appointment points to a schedule item, every availability block points to a schedule item, anything else that may appear on the calendar points to a schedule item. The problem with that is that when I want to query my appointments table and get certain 
info like the start time and end time of the appointment that start time and end time that's on the schedule item table so i have to do a join between Mm -hmm. appointments and schedule items every single time i want to get the appointment time which is really tedious so i created a view where i select all my appointment attributes and then i join it with the schedule item table and then it, it looks like just one single table where I can do dot uh, starts at or whatever it is, and it makes it convenient. So that's one use. That's one example. I'm using some kind of other similar similar things where it's like 90% one table, and then it's joining to get that little bit extra that would be inconvenient otherwise. Do you ever do anything like that, or are your use cases different? Mine are probably mine are almost always directed toward reporting. Um, so, like we have one, we have um, we have to recognize revenue, and we're because we're a, you know, we lease apartments. The way that works actually is like, say you lease from us for six months, and uh, you paid the entire thing up front. Well, I, that's actually not revenue in our world until each month passes. We can recognize one month of that six months until the end. Because at some point you could move out, we would refund your money, and th- that's not our revenue. So that's unrecognized revenue. And that's, from a reporting standpoint, really difficult to expose just like through active record for us. Um, so we have this like, you know, this pretty hefty bit of SQL that does sort of our revenue recognition that shows, you know, we got this reservation, they paid for this much money, the reservation spans this much time, this much time has elapsed, uh, this much time is going, and we, you know, prorate the amounts on either side of it. And that's really like, it's a simple thing for an account, somebody in our accounting department to query to see what, what the recognized revenue is in all of Tampa. Um, where, you know, if we had to do that, just if we had to just manage the SQL itself, it would just be a daunting, you know, here doc in a model somewhere that would be really painful for everybody. Um, and the other item is, so we're, we're using JSONB in a lot of places and syntactically that can be hard for people, especially uh, business operators outside of developers who may need to query things. Um, you know, it has that kind of like arrow syntax to get into your nestings of your documents. And so we've, we're using it there a lot to kind of like make that look and feel and surface that up like it was a table for somebody so that they can query it and filter on it the way they would do on any table. And they don't have to know specifically, like I have to do, you know, dash arrow, arrow, square brackets to get into this, you know, Jason B attribute thing in this query. Okay. Um, here's, this is kind of an unrelated question. Um, but when you do your reporting stuff on the back end, do you do that all custom or do you use some kind of library that assists with all the reporting stuff? Um, I'm going to give you the best, you know, the ultimate consulting answer. It depends. Mm -hmm. Uh, we're using some BI tooling for, you know, a lot of the dashboard, um, you know, tracking over time kind of things. There are kind of these um, like ad hoc reports, like this revenue recognition thing I mentioned, where it's like somebody needs to know, run a report today for some bisect of our business, what revenue is outstanding, what we have on our books and what we don't. And for those things, like 
we honestly try to stay out of the reporting business as much as possible because there are a lot of tools that do this really well. There are a lot of people in the world that do this really well. So um, not to put all of the onus on the developers to maintain reporting when we have business logic and infrastructure to maintain. Yeah. However, it happens. It does happen. You know, there are the but in this case examples. Yeah, I've been having some challenges in the reporting section of the application I've been working on because, for one, there's a number of like charts and graphs in there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it's like when I did my research to look at the chart and graph libraries, it's like everything did like 80% of what I wanted yeah. or had like one or two like really annoying problems. There was nothing that like was, was just the right thing. Um, I ended up, so I grabbed like the the best thing or the least worst thing that I could find. And it has been pretty good, mm-hmm. but it certainly leaves some things to be desired. And I can tell that long-term it's, it's not going to be what I want. There's this one, um, there's this one library that's like really popular, but it also looks like it has a really steep learning curve. Um, it's a famous one. It's D D three. Is that it? D three. Oh yeah. 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 So that was one of the candidates, and I'm like, this this is great. I have like no objections to D3 from like a quality of output standpoint. It's just like I don't know if if such an investment in learning this tool is warranted for our paltry needs at this point. Yeah. So maybe I'll go there sometime. But anyway, I use this more like more like low grade tool, and it's fine. But we're starting to get needs like we want this particular piece of data data, and we want to see it by day, by week, by month. And then I'm asked to make this other report and it's for this other set of attributes. And they're like, oh, hey, we want to see it by day, by week, by month. And pretty soon I write these separate reports that are all like by day, by week, by month and just Uh grabbing these arbitrary attributes and after a while, that is like, okay, this is dumb because this is really repetitive. There surely are tools out there that will like slice and dice this stuff and you can kind of plug your data in. Like I haven't used that stuff, but like I know there's stuff like that, right? Yeah, yeah, there's, um, you know, I mean, there are like, I don't know the pricing or, you know, contract negotiations, but like in the previous jobs we've used, um, Oh, I don't remember what it's called now. Chartio. Chartio was a big tool for us in a previous life. Um, Looker. I've seen Looker be uh, really popular with people. It's apparently like one of the more robust, but not quite as like heavy handed as, uh, you know, like something out of Salesforce towers, you know, one of those like big Salesforce products, Tableau or whatever. Um, I've had colleagues who love, uh, I think it's Metabase. Love it. Swear by it. I've heard of that. Yeah. Um, love it. Love it. Love it. Um, I think they all kind of, you know, kind of like you speak to your uh, your charting libraries. I mean, I feel like they probably all do like 80, 85% of what you need. You know, I, I've never really found any of these things to just like cover all my bases. And that's where we come in, right? Like if you could find one that covers the 80% rule, well, your business is going to at some point find that 20% and be like, we can't do it. And you go, oh, yeah, you can't. And then maybe that's a good opportunity to use a database view or something and create some, 
you know, function of data that then can be surfaced through some tooling that then they can filter on by day, by week, by month. Um, changing gears a little bit, just talking about the various use cases of views. Do you ever, well, some, sometimes I use a view just to like lower the cognitive burden of looking at a query. I used to years ago, like I would look at a query that I wrote that was like, 67 lines long and i'd be like yeah this is awesome i'm so (laughs) smart look at this huge query that i wrote and now i look at a query like that and i'm like this is stupid like we should never have a 67 line long query even if it really is like you know all that stuff is necessary it's just like ruby code like don't have a 67 line function like break that up so i like Mm -hmm. to take my subqueries especially, of course, if there's a subquery that's duplicated more than once inside of the query. But even if not, I'll sometimes take that out and split it out into a view. Then I can actually look at the query and understand the whole thing. Maybe I don't know what's happening inside that view, but if I care about those details, I can go look at it. But now I actually have some hope of understanding the gestalt. Do you ever use that technique? Yeah, we do. So, you know, I'm a big fan of abstracting away the complexity that might be underlying SQL, because although I think a lot of people are comfortable with it, I don't think they always want to get into the nitty gritty of it, especially if you start using like, you know, Postgres window functions, or, you know, they have Postgres has ways to like spread data across, you know, create these like, um, not aggregate, but kind of the opposite, like an iterative thing where it'll kind of spread data across a set. And unless you want people reading a lot of Postgres documentation, that can be kind of gnarly. Um, and so to put that into a database view or just hide it away somewhere where the API is really clean, somebody can interact with this thing really easily and they don't necessarily know how to how it, how it has to operate under the hood has been really handy for us. You know, we use... I, I'm a big fan of common table expressions as I write SQL for kind of the same way where you can kind of like break these, break these things into chunks and operate on each one individually. Um, and, you know, I don't even know that I could speak to the trade-offs of that versus a database view other than like a database view would be more persistent and kind of happens at runtime where that CTE, really that data gets loaded into memory and can only be read once and then it's gone. Um, Wait, you used a term that I that I didn't know, uh, and then you used the abbreviation, but I forgot what it actually stands for. CTE, what was that? Oh shoot, sorry, I'm all I'm all over the place here. Um, common table expression is like a type of temporary table. So you have like temp tables that you could actually do like create temp table, and you know if you were in the database, create temp table, define some columns, and insert some data into that, and it lives for like the lifetime of the session, the session, quote unquote, in memory uh, on your database server. So it'll occupy some amount of RAM and hold that data for querying and requerying. A common table expression is kind of the same thing. So it's like a with statement. If you've ever seen a with statement in Postgres where it's like Mm -hmm. with some name as, and then you write a, a query and it will use that and load it into memory and it can be read against as if it were a table one time and then after that one time it will evict it from memory so it's less memory intensive it kind of runs in stream of like another query where you can kind of 
almost method chaining, but at a database level where you can chain data sets together to kind of build something. And I like that for my own readability because I can kind uh -huh. of build query sets and then join them together to get a kind of master thing. And how would that go in your application code? Like, would you have a file that has maybe three or four separate subqueries, and then at the bottom you'd stitch it all together, or, or would it go some other way, or what? Um, it you know, uh, a rel, a rel. I'm not sure. The underlying mechanism behind Active Record actually has like native uh, helpers for common table expressions. So you, there's just like a dot notation to open up common table. It might be dot with, I'm not sure, but um, we've operated it that way. Mostly if I'm doing this, it's probably like a query and I might have, you know, two date params to get a date range or, um, you know, a filter set to get a filter on a list of IDs. And that's a parameter passed into something that I just write the SQL for into a class, a query object or something. Um, Okay. And these things are things that I've never even heard of before. Um, <laughs> and how might you know when you need this kind of stuff or not need it? Because like, I don't know, for me, for example, I'm apparently getting by just fine without any of that stuff, but maybe I'm leaving some huge advantages on the table. And I don't know how I know whether I just haven't gotten to that point of having something that calls for that yet versus I'm doing things really inefficiently and like I could use this different way and it would be great. So how did you know when it was appropriate to use those things? That's a, that's a really good question. Um, I apologize for my meandering database bonkerness in this one too, but mm, this, this whole show is meandering bonkers. So <laughs> don't apologize. Um, you know, a really simple example or a really simple use case is like, for our, our production database, um, we have, you know, one write user, which is the application, and any additional uh, business owners who want access to the data directly uh, either have to go through another tool, which would only get a read user, or if they're comfortable, we can give them a read user themselves, and they can read data off a replica or, you know, a, a follower. We're on Heroku, so we're using Heroku followers. In that instance, a uh, like a temporary table, an actual temp table requires a write access user because you're actually writing something into the database even though it's temporary. Uh, so in those instances, a common table expression is really all you can do um, to try and make that work. Otherwise, you would be just out of luck. Um, I like common table expressions because they let me build up my data sets. I think like I bring it up because it sounds similar to the way you use database views. I use database views more to abstract away complexity of SQL. Um, I hadn't actually thought about using it as like almost a joining chaining method to create subselects, if you will, and attach them together. Um, I kind of have used CTEs in that way where I have these you know, separate select statements that I wrap in a common table expression and then at a later point can kind of stitch them back together. Well, here's what I'm taking away from it. And tell me if you think of it like this or not. Like, it seems to me that you might use a CTE in a case where a view would be really convenient because it abstracts something away and like compresses it so you can actually understand the full query. But 
it's not something that you would want just hanging around forever at all times. Mm -hmm. And so you'd want it to just be ephemeral. So you only like have to care about it during that in that one place where you're constructing the query. Is that kind of how you think about it or not really? Yeah. No, I think that's a great way to view it. Um, Jason saves a day. I mean, yeah, that's a, that's what I really think about. It's like these ephemeral little data sets that I need, you know, one time or in this one operation or in this one chain of something and I don't need it again. And, um, you know, I've always, as part of my reporter reporting developer days, you know, the main concern was like, don't, don't bring down the servers, you know, and it, in 08, this was a lot of people were still hosting hardware. So like memory was an issue, you know, you might have like a large institution running against a database server. And it's like, well, if you have all of these, if you're bringing in tons of data sets or your persisting temporary tables, even for the life of a session, all of a sudden, like you start seeing swap memory on the database because it's out of RAM and all this bad stuff happens. So I think that's how I learned about common table expressions was I did that and I like, brought in 10 million rows in a temp table and somebody was like, dude, quit. Um, and I was like, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, and they ta- taught me a more efficient way to do it on memory. Uh, you know, maybe I'm antiquated. Maybe none of this matters anymore because we're all in the cloud and we all have like infinite space, as much space as the cloud providers give us. Well, I haven't run into problems like that yet, but that's just because of our scale. I, uh, so the, the application I've been working on, I was the commit number one and that was just like two years ago yeah and so this isn't something that's used by millions or even thousands or even hundreds of people yet so the scale is pretty small it's more of like breadth of features as opposed to yeah high volume of of users and stuff like that so i guess i personally will know how relevant those lessons are when we get to the point of of having that volume yeah, um, well, and for your use case, you probably need to know a lot about the database because you're not going to have a reporting team somewhere doing all this, you know, enterprisey stuff. Like, that's you. Yeah. Yeah. I get to do the database stuff and the JavaScript and the graphic design and all that stuff, <laughs> which is fun. I like it. Yeah. Um, okay. So, for you at Landing, completely different question. Um, I'm just curious, like, the the view that you've gotten um different sense of the word view the the view that you've gotten in your time there so like what stage was the business at when you started with the organization and what kind of growth have you gone through since that time um it's been pretty tremendous i mean you know i started in i just had my like one year anniversary there it was end of last month um and we when we started we actually were uh, we had a different company name and uh, we didn't, we had a product, but it wasn't nearly what we have today. And we probably were operating in like one city. I think we have 14 cities now. And, you know, the volume has just, especially in the, I'll say the last since May, really, really, really accelerated. Um, where now, you know, when I started, we were a team of three. We're not we're not much bigger. We're probably a team of six or seven developers now. But like as a company, the company has probably hired uh, you know ten x in a year for sure. Um, and we're just it's a you know big operational play, right? Like we're we're 
furnishing and leasing these units, um, we, we kind of like, uh, for lack of a better term, like sublease, you know, we, we lease it from a property management company and then furnish it and equip it and get all the utilities set up and everything and then lease it to a user where they just show up with their like suitcase and their dog or cat or whatever. And um, that's a big like logistics to get all the TVs and utensils and towels and bed sheets and furniture and uh, T uh, Wi-Fi and everything set up kind of like in a time frame of like, Jason leases with us and we're like, all right, your place will be ready in five days, you know, and you're, you're moving and we have to get all that done in the amount of time. And anybody who has to had to move a lot, especially in apartments, like getting your utilities changed over, getting your internet set up, right? Like yeah, so much stuff. Most of the internet is like, we'll see you in, you know, seven to 10 days between the hours of, you know, 8am and 2pm or something. Right. Um, yeah. I saw this weird Al tweet one time and he said, he he got a he made an appointment with the cable company and they said they would be there sometime within the Cenozoic period. <laughs> I really like that one. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, here's something interesting. So, like, when people think about technology companies, including me, like I think about things like Uber, for example. I, I think one time I was thinking about like what have smartphones really done for us and what have they enabled and stuff like that. And one interesting ability that they've given us is you can order a car to come to you wherever you are and, and take you somewhere. There's, there's not really any way that it can be done quite the way it is with just like old fashioned taxis. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of interesting. And that is very like predicated on the technology. Like yeah. you have this computer in your hand that like knows where in the world it is and stuff like that. But another thing that I, that I have not thought about as much until recently, and probably most people don't think about if they're anything like me, is like some jobs in the world are just really, really complicated. And mm -hmm. they are, they're like prohibitively complicated to the extent where some things aren't even possible or like performing at a certain speed isn't possible just using pen and paper or keeping it all in your head and stuff like that. And the thing that has illustrated that for me is working with the, the medical clinic that I've been working for for the last two years. Um, like going to the, going to the doctor and getting your bill and paying for it is something that sounds simple, but as everybody knows, medical billing is, is complicated and not straightforward mm -hmm. and stuff like that. And even as crazy as people know that it is, it's even crazier than that. Like there's so much stuff that just has to happen and so many, so many details, so many little things that can go wrong and stuff like that, that like anybody doing that on pen and paper is just, they're just screwed because it's mm -hmm. too much to do. And like, there are like, there are clinics that are comparable size to us who have like a team of billing people just to like keep everything straight. Cause like, for example, the insurance companies will intentionally underpay by like a few pennies or like a couple dollars or yeah. something like that to like make some millions of dollars by underpaying right. a million people by a couple dollars. Yeah. And it's just impossible to keep on top of all that stuff because it's so nuanced and it's, you have to find a million needles in a haystack. Anyway, what 
made me think about all that stuff is the the business that you work for, which is like it's not really it's not just like an app that's not the core of it or although maybe that's a big part of it like the thing that you do is you handle all these logistics of these apartments which i think just would probably not be possible were it not for the it that's supporting all that is am i understanding that right yeah that's right that's like the you know that's really the value proposition like if you're if you're gonna move and i i think there's a you know a a generation coming up who like is very uh, keen to the idea of like less stuff. You know, I don't want a bunch of stuff. I don't want to tote around a bunch of stuff. I don't want to own a bunch of stuff. I kind of just want to like live my life and, you know, do good work and, and, you know, enjoy what the world has to offer. And I think that's what landing is trying to speak to is like, don't, you don't have to have stuff. Like we have the stuff, we'll bring the stuff to you. You don't have to go through all the rigmarole of like, I moved in March right before uh, kind of lockdown and everything. Moving, it sucks. I mean, I think at some list it says it's like the eighth most stressful thing anybody can do in their entire life where like, you know, getting married and, you know, having children are higher up there. But like moving is rough and nobody likes doing it. So just to have that kind of freedom of like pack a suitcase, go somewhere, show up, you know, like the TV's there, the the bed sheets are there. Everything is there. And it's exactly like it was at the last landing you were at, you know, you don't have to worry about quality. It's like, it's not Airbnb where I, I used to, I used to travel for work and I love staying in Airbnbs cause I kind of loved the like crapshoot of it. You know, it's like, yeah. Oh, you know, this ceiling is only seven feet tall. Like that's okay <laughs> for me because I'm only, you know, five, nine, but it still feels a little hobbit hole, you know? <laughs> um, so I think that's what we're trying trying to speak to is like, you know, if you join landing, you get in on this membership thing, you can go to any of the landings, you know, kind of nationwide, stay for as long as you want, 30 days notice, go to a different one. Um, that's sort of what we're trying to trying to keen on is that you don't have to you don't have to deal with all that. And yeah, the tech is what we use to, you know, operate that supply chain to make sure that the flows all work and everything kind of in the end user experience is like, you didn't, you didn't know any of that happened. It just, you showed up and it was there. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty interesting. I, I think there's a popular belief, which is true in a way that software is really complicated, but like really just the world is really complicated mm-hmm. and the software is only complicated because it needs to match the world. Right. Right. And it's our job as software developers to take, you know, really complicated things and try to make really simple systems out of them. And like, that's for me, that's what always feels the greatest at the end of the day is like, you took this really complicated process or problem and you created this really simple, easy to understand solution. That's easy to maintain and grow and extend and everything, you know, and sometimes, I mean, I've been doing this a long time, probably more times than not. I, I fail at that, but when I do succeed, it feels great. Yeah, well, it's almost inevitable that you're not going to get it right the first time. It's like you have to build the wrong thing first in order to be able to understand even what the right thing would have been. There's that saying that every complex system that works evolved from a simple system that works. And mm-hmm. it's like, it's not even that. It's like my experience with like everything I've ever built is like, okay, I build a simple thing. Oh, that's wrong. Okay, fix it. Now it's right. Okay, now yeah. let's expand that. Oh, the expansion is wrong. Let's fix that. Okay, now that's great. 
Now let's reconcile it with everything else that's there, expand again, blah, blah, blah. And only through that process can something that actually works be brought into existence. If you try to like design this whole complicated thing up front, there's like no chance that they could get it right. Oh yeah. No, I mean, rails was such a revolution to me in you know, 2013 or whatever, because, you know, coming from the reporting developer side and then kind of into the enterprise space into like big banks and energy companies, you know, they had, um, you know, waterfall model, big requirements documents, you know, a three month project to like effectively get it all right up front, you know, and then, then you did the work and it never worked. Right. Mm -hmm. Like it, it was like, oh, these database tables won't work. You got to change this, that, and the other, you know. And at least at the time, there was no like code first database thing, or at least I didn't know about it. And so somebody wrote out a database schema, wrote create table. There were SQL scripts that created all this stuff. And worst thing about it was once it lived, like once it was live in production, that stuff's very hard to change. You know, it's very hard to evolve in that mechanism, even when you have to aside from the giant requirements process, just the the rate of iteration, you just kind of had to live with mistakes until, you know, the next release, which might be quarterly or something. Oh, no. And and Rails was like, this database migration thing? Like, what? Do you, what? You know, it was just so revolutionary that I could just kind of, like, make these very small changes over, you know, many small changes over a longer period of time instead of, like, you know, the big red button where you code for three months and you press deploy and cross your fingers and hope it all works. Yeah. Yeah. And working in organizations that, that operate differently, obviously like it feels like everybody in the world at this point knows that waterfall is bad and working iteratively is good, but that's not really the truth. Like it's not the truth that everybody thinks that like you can still go places where they do things in a waterfall style. And so I, I really appreciate working at places that do do it iteratively. And also, like, it's great to work at a place that values cleaning things up and, like, always working from a solid foundation. Because I've certainly worked at places, I don't know if this is exactly what you were saying, I, I think it's not, but, like, I've worked at places where, like, if you make a mistake, then, oh, well, it's just baked in. And we're just going to work around that mistake forever. Mm -hmm. And that's like bad because one mistake is one thing. But then what if you have like 40 compromises in your code base? They end up overlapping and interacting with each other. And then things are like way worse. Like 10 10 little bugs doesn't make... 10 little bugs is not 10 bugs. It's more like 100 bugs, you know, Mm -hmm. because because it has like a compounding effect. I worked on this application one time to give an example of something that's like really worth cleaning up, but but maybe not commonly cleaned up. It had to do with tests or quizzes or questionnaires or something like that. And I don't remember the exact word, but it had like test and then quiz. So like in some places it was called a test, in some places it was called a quiz. Mm-hmm. And you never knew just which one it was going to be. And so like it was a violation of that principle of least astonishment. You could never do like, mm-hmm. is it dot test or is it dot quiz? <laughs> I don't know. I have to go look at this one. And there had to be like all these translations and stuff like that. And what really should have happened, but nobody wanted to do was go back and change every instance of test to quiz 
or make everything be test instead of quiz, just make everything be the same. Because that stuff doesn't seem that valuable, but it is really valuable. Unfortunately, it gets really expensive to change once it's like strewn about in the code base everywhere. But I think it's really worth it to do. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's uh, modern software development. I say modern. I mean, it's been around a while. But that that idea of like continually making your product better uh, has just been a game changer for the entire industry. I don't even really know anybody who kind of works in like the a, a bigger place anymore you know so i it's hard to say that they don't do that or they do i don't know what they're doing anymore over there where it's like you know they may have a you know really big team of people and uh can only release software for various reasons so often i mean when a long time ago we used to only use orms to create data structures because it was like a sideways to get around like the DBA team where you like had to submit a thing and then they reviewed it and it took forever. So you were like, Oh, you know, at the, you know, at the time it was hibernate, we were doing Java and it was like, you can create these tables with code. Let's just get it in there and they won't notice. Um, and so I don't know, I'm sure it's a much better ecosystem, even for the enterprise developer now, you know, mm-hmm. I don't, I'm, are there, enterprise uh rails developers other than like maybe at like shopify and github yeah there's a, there's a book called enterprise rails that came out some years ago um but yeah that's interesting you know that thing conway's law that like your code is structured in a way that reflects the structure of your team or something like mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. i never really understood like how that would go but what you just said was a great example of that like you were totally obeying Conway's law because the structure of your team made it so that you couldn't create those database tables without going through that other team or whatever. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. so you, you had to do it this other way in order to get it done in a timely manner. And so the structure of your code reflected the structure of your team. So that's a pretty interesting illustration of that Conway's law. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't even think about that. That is a good one. Um, Okay, so maybe maybe last question because we're getting close to time. Um, this is kind of a fundamental one because I try to always keep this show somewhat beginner friendly. Um, how do you? And and I say this is the last question. It's it's kind of a huge question, so I, I apologize, but hopefully we can kind of answer it in a in a succinct way. When you're building a new feature, how do you think about how you're gonna? model your your data for that feature like for me for example i'll often like get a piece of paper or take a note and like write out the tables and the columns in those tables that i'll want and then i'll translate that into the rails models that i might want and i'll go from there Um, do you do that in a similar way or do you take some different approach to to that i i kind of go the other way i kind of go like um outside in where I, I sort of write and stub out the API, the class API that I want to use on it. Like I might write a model, but without the inheritance onto, you know, application record and sort of write the things like how I would use this thing, you know, based on the problems it's trying to solve. What am I going to, what am I going to call? What do I want to call to do like dot, something you know and even in the in the caller 
to write it and do dots and be like, oh, okay, I'm going to do that. And then from that way, I can understand what data I need, what data and how I need to like interact with it, how I need to maybe transform it in the model before I push it up to a, you know, a controller or some other plain old Ruby object somewhere. Okay, interesting. Yeah, I, it never occurred to me that like somebody else would do it in a way that's different from how I do it. But <laughs> that's that's kind of silly. Obviously, there's going to be a variety of approaches. At what point does the UI come into the picture for you? Because like, well, obviously, like sometimes you'll be responsible for creating the UI just because there's nobody else to do it or whatever. Sometimes yeah. you'll get handed a design by somebody else. But like, for me to give a, a slightly more fleshed out account of, of how I approach it. If it's kind of a non-trivial feature, I'll maybe like create some wireframes on paper and like draw out, I'm gonna have these three input fields and I'm gonna have this button here and stuff like that. And I'll kind of figure out how it's gonna look and work and stuff like that. And then that's where the baton gets passed into that flow that I mentioned before, or I list mm -hmm. out the database tables and columns and stuff like that. Where does the UI come into the picture for you? Well, I really only get to do a lot of like UI UX work in like, we have an administration side. And so it looks a lot like that. Like I'm actually, you know, I, this is a real problem I have right now. Like we have parking, you know, we provide parking just like a building would provide parking. And there's, like these vectors of parking, like you could have covered parking, you could have assigned parking, you could have covered and assigned parking, you, could, you know, and there's like, I'm trying to think through how to like, if, if you were going to configure a parking, a set of parking products or whatever for a building, how do you do that in the UI? Um, and I kind of do it the same way, pen and paper, like I'll try to, I'll try to draw it out or I'll try to like think of other examples that I've seen that may have maybe have had to solve a similar problem. Um, and a lot of times, like, there are times where I have no idea how to build this thing or how to structure it. And in that way, doing it from, like, a UI perspective, even if I'm not going to end up building or designing the actual thing, like, just thinking about how anyone would take in the data, sometimes helps me understand, like, how it's going to flow all the way down to the database and what it needs to look like on, on one end or the other. Mm, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, sometimes just like getting started doesn't matter almost which direction you come at it from, but as long as you start like poking your way into it from somewhere, that can help you realize like, oh, okay, like it's going to have these attributes and blah, blah, blah. That makes right. sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, uh, very, very last question. Where can people go to find you online? Sure. Uh, I'm at markhutter.com. My Twitter and GitHub are linked there. Uh, I'm on Twitter a decent amount, so you can also find me there. It's mrkhutter because Mark Hutter was already taken. We'll put that all in the show notes. Mark, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Jason. It was fun.